Welcome to Cabbages and Kings, the podcast for readers of science fiction and fantasy. I'm your host, Jonah Sutton Morse. This episode, we rejoin Brandon O'Brien's Black Star Cruises and listen to the voices of Maurice Broaddus' new novella, Buffalo Soldier. First, though, Zeve Witties joins me to discuss The Just City, the first book in Joe Walton's trilogy in which Plato's Republic is made real. Zeve maintains the short story Squee and Snark website, where a new speculative short story is squeed and snarked about every Tuesday, and is on Twitter as at quite vague. I began the interview by confessing that my overall reaction to The Just City was mostly meh. I hear you. I love the book. It's a standout book for me. It's something that I found uh, impressive and unusual and fascinating. I really enjoyed it. Excellent. That means that we have things to disagree about, which I have learned is a yes. key part of getting getting a good discussion going. Before we launch into the book, let's start just a little bit with your history with the genre and what have you read and how long have you been reading it? So I'm trying to think about how far back I go. I I think I think I probably got started with Star Trek. I remember science fiction and fantasy back to back to grade school. I have two very strong impressions of books that were firsts for me. Where one was a Dragonlance book, which I found in the library, translated to Hebrew, and borrowed without noticing that it was the second book of the second trilogy. I don't think I understood anything. So is that the twins? <laughs> one of the twins books. The second okay. twin book. I think it starts out with one of them trapped in a tower or something like that. I don't think I understood anything of what was going on. I don't know if I finished the book... <laughs> <laughs> eventually i went back and i and i understood what was going on and and i and i went deeply into dragonlance at that point but at the time it was like oh i'm in the library and here is a book that looks cool mm-hmm. the other thing i remember was also in 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 grade school i wound up going with my english teacher to a used bookstore to get books for the class library and she got me a Star Trek book because I saw Star Trek books. I'm like, wow, there are Star Trek books. books. And my English teacher got me a book. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I remember that as being, oh, wow, there are books. From there, I mean, by, by the time I was in, in junior high, uh, I was reading all genre all the time. I had a friend who had all the Terry Pratchett books and he... And he got me into those, and that was fantastic. And then I started finding everything. I've been reading pretty much constantly since then. I'm not, I always feel like I'm way behind on my reading. Yes. (laughs) Like there's so much that I haven't read. Well, and I really like rereading. And so when I'm, especially like last year, I did a lot of reading new stuff and, and, my piles of books that I want to go back to and sort of curl up with, including the right. annotated Dragonlance Chronicles, because I'd been planning Absolutely. on keeping up with Mavesh and Jared as they went through them. Uh huh. Oh wow. Okay. Are Are you much of a rereader or not so much? So I used to reread tons. I think part of it is um, I think part of it is the uh, is the 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 landscape. Just because. Okay. So in Israel, for a long time before like before there was lots of really good online stores, it was just generally hard to find a wide variety of books. 
mm-hmm. and the library would have some stuff and friends would have some stuff but the 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 scene was relatively small and the and the variety was relatively small and the books were relatively expensive mm-hmm. i remember i remember planning big book buys around anybody going to, on a visit to the states and i would go to online used bookstores and get as many books as i could for the least <laughs> <laughs> for the least price possible. And I would plan this out because that was my big opportunity to get a lot of books that I'd been looking forward to. Okay. So rereading was uh, constant because I had all these fantastic books, real huge favorites, and it was usually like the biggest and most popular and, and most enduring uh, things. And on the other hand, I didn't have a constant inflow of new stuff for for a long time. And in recent years, that has no longer been the case because First of all, now that <laughs> now that I am a big adult, uh, I have uh, I, I I do not need to worry about getting books at the at the cheapest price possible. Right, I can be current, and with internet stores and with uh, Kindle, it's just so easy to get any book that I'm interested in that I no longer have time to reread uh, like I used to, and I have less things that I'm constantly returning to than I used to. Okay. A lot of the teenage favorites, I won't say I don't reread anymore, but I reread less frequently than I used to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there were, there were definitely things that were sort of annual rereads that are no longer. Yeah. yeah. Um, and a few that, that don't, don't right, hold up that, quite I, as I, well. It will retain things that will retain a warm, a warm corner in my heart, but that doesn't need to be revisited exactly. and reexamined. The teenage affection is sort of the perfect place for them to be. We'll move on now to The Just City. So this is the only book in my entire life that I've ever bought based on a book ad. There was a print ad for The Just City in fantasy and science fiction. And I saw it and I read it and I said, that sounds really, really, really cool. I I don't think I've ever reacted that way to a print ad Mm -hmm. before. It's It's just a cool high concept idea. And one of the things that really grabbed me about it was the idea that it's not only a recreation of, uh, of the Republic, but specifically that it is done with the support of a goddess. With, with, with Athene, Athene? Yes. With Athene supporting and bankrolling and magicking together the entire <laughs> he, thing. He needs some robots to keep things going. You need to go, go find a whole bunch yeah. of a whole bunch of kids who can be removed. So you need one thousand. You need one thousand orphans, do you? <laughs> I happen to have them I right here. Do with that. And and here's part of why that that grabbed me was because my immediate reaction to to it is okay this is this is a book so there's going to be conflict it's a book about creating the society so the society is likely to go horribly wrong but there's something that I find very interesting about starting out from an impossibly good position in other words the conflict that you get from adversity is very different than the conflict that you get from having plenty from having the best starting point possible right. and kind of having as much rope as you need to hang yourself mm-hmm. and also the best possible conditions to get to the best possible result that that seems to me like a much more intriguing experiment than 
one which is actually limited by the by the obvious difficulties. For one thing, okay, this this is this is important how I read the book. Okay. I feel like the book it is obviously about recreating the republic, but it's not just about recreating the republic. It's about building up a society. And the republic is a very convenient and and well-known and vivid blueprint for a society that you can create. But what's important to me about the book is that you have a huge community of people who are trying to think of the best way to do things and who are unfettered, who have all the resources that they need. And they're given the go-ahead to do anything that they like in order to create the best community and society that they can. And I find, again, I find that an intriguing prospect because when you think about, okay, what would you actually want from society if you could have anything? That's a lot of responsibility. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think that part of what the book is saying is that even when you have very well-intentioned people, a society can't serve anybody. And I'm not saying just the republic can't serve everybody. Just the republic is a flawed society. But rather that society by its nature is going to fail some people. Given that the Just City is so interested in society, it's worth asking, is the society that's been created a utopia or a dystopia? I think the Just City has the potential to be both because it's presented as something that has huge potential. Again, you have hugely well-intentioned people with every possible resource. And their concept is not only to, to create, you know, an ideal society, but it's to create a society that produces philosopher kings who will, who will improve the system even further and maximize justice and happiness for all. These kids were not products of the city for the first 10 years, and their children will be products of the city from, from birth. And so... Mm -hmm. Their children, you know, the second generation should be a lot better at making the perfect society, whatever it is. But not only that, even these these children, when these children grow up and they become, yeah, and they become the people in charge, you have a sense that you have a society here of not, you know, the the, the, the few hundred supplicants, but you have okay, a thousand uh, children who are raised under this system under the best conditions. And some of them are going to to be absolutely brilliant. And maybe, I don't know, maybe they'll fix the, the festivals of Hera, or I don't know what they'll do. But the idea is that if this is, this is the, the, the pie in the sky dream is that if you're able to isolate a perfect society well enough, then the products of that society are going to be even better. And they will be able to improve the society even further. And what you get is a platonic singularity where, the, where the, um, where the society is good enough to improve itself even further. And I think that Walton presents the positive sides, the strengths of the society, clearly enough that there is something utopian about it. On the other hand, it's clearly not a functioning society. You see it from the very beginning, like, like, like I said, that, that even you know, very well-intentioned choices have unintended consequences. And throughout the book, you see that the society is fragile, that even though it's got the backing of a god. And all of these masters who are unconditionally obeyed 
and all of these robots who do all of the work for you. <laughs> yeah, and and still there are there are constant cracks and constant discontent uh, and constant ways for things to go wrong. I kind of felt like the entire book had this undertone of you really wouldn't want to live in this society, or you might think you want to live in this society, but look at what it takes. I, again, exposing babies is one of the things that that Plato recommends and that uh, we see the masters doing. There's this bit right at the very beginning where you have all the supplicants to Athene, and Athene invites them all to found the just city, to found the republic, and some of them say no, just a few. Yes. There, there are people there, and, and at the time... I think I, I think Maya mentions this. Maya is the is, is the is the master protagonist. She mentions she she doesn't understand why people would possibly say say no. It's un, un, unthinkable to her at that point. And then later we see her having two murder babies, <laughs> mm-hmm. and she kind of rolls with that. And it's seen as a cost of the society. And that is again at, at the beginning before things have gotten. A, chance to go very far wrong. There's a very strong sense that there is something fundamentally wrong with trying to create a perfect society that is in any way based on rules or authority. The sting is going to be there somewhere. The price is going to be paid somewhere. When Ziv and I began talking about the Just City, we talked about the two children brought to the city as our way into the narrative. One of the very first things that happens is we meet one of the protagonists, Simea, and right away she describes how she was bought as a slave girl, which was very merciful and was a fantastic turn of events for her. But at the same time, she is aware of how the masters of the just city have created a demand for orphan children. This is right there at the beginning. And right there, just in that one line, it was like, okay, you know, they, they're they clearly good people here trying to do good things, and those things have unexpected consequences in unexpected ways. And that, that grabbed me. There is also a boy with her. Kebis. Yes, and he is resentful of the fact that someone else has control over him. Like, he realizes that he had been enslaved and was taken by the masters and brought to the just city, and that sort of that's probably the best possible outcome that he could have expected, other than sort of being able to be with his family. Mm -hmm. But he remains extremely resentful throughout the book that he was not given a choice in that. Right. The just city clearly fails him in this regard. Yes. He's a character who is unsympathetic he's he's annoying and aggressive and later he's horrible but at the same time you're very very clear on the city being very unjust to him one of the very first things that happens to him is that the masters go and they change his name which you can see is is for him a very invasive and significant means of asserting authority over him and taking away his past and his history and for Simea the meaning is entirely different, but for him, it's it's this horrible wound that grates on him his entire life. They, in many ways, are the, the polar opposites and the ways to see into the city one who entirely buys into the notion that I will, I will pursue my own excellence as much as possible, 
mm-hmm. and one who is our chance to see really all of the different sorts of objections that you could raise to being brought to the brought to the city. Yeah. I think even more than just uh, Simea likes the city and Kebes dislikes the city, I think what's fascinating to me is that the city rewards Simea very highly. The city is is perfect for Simea. It, it is what... It, it genuinely, it genuinely does her good. The city genuinely does Simea a lot of good, and the city ge- genuinely fails Kebes very badly, and that plays into to the fact that Samea really loves it, and Kebes is is staunchly opposed to it. I feel like Samea is the is the city's proof of concept in many ways. Yes, she is actually sold on the the path to excellence. And you feel that the city is actually giving her ways to actualize herself, to uh, to improve herself, to become something that she never could possibly have been in another setting. So the city is a very good thing for Simea. Yes. And by the same token, it is not for Kebis. Even even though it gives him the same opportunities and the same advantages and, and, and even makes him a gold and everything the fact that his own desires are being overridden and even the fact that he is so resentful but the city is not capable of dealing with that means that the city just exactly. isn't capable of uh handling him it can't handle him and it fails him because the city is meant to be good for him and it isn't right and i mean plato was either was either joking a lot when he he invented the idea of the republic or he was trying to create a perfect city and he clearly fails right like i mean there are lots and lots of ways in which plato's just city is not workable and so to some extent the fact that the city fails kebis i felt was kind of uninteresting because saying plato's just city is not really a workable actual model for how people can live together is not a very interesting statement. So I guess the question is, are the ways that it fails Kebis kind of interesting? Really, the core of Kebis's argument is, I don't want to be here. Less than any particular objection to, to the just city. More than anything, he wants to be his own master. He wants to choose not to be in this society, and that's the one thing the society can't give him. Right. It's less that he's saying the Republic is a bad model. That's not even what he's saying. He's saying the Republic can't deal with a defector. Right. I, I, I would like to be able to make a choice for myself. Right. And that's there's no space or provision for that. Right. And that's intriguing to me because i think a lot of the i think a lot of the gist of the just city is to provide maximum choice a lot of what it's trying to do and and you see this with the workers is that it's trying to recognize uh significance it's trying to recognize personal choice and personal freedom and well okay not personal freedom exactly but yeah right not freedom is probably the wrong word here but uh, equal uh, volition and equal significance is the phrases that they keep using. So, so we can we can go with that. It's like the just city. We we don't see the just city trying to deal with any other real threat except 
the basic statement of I don't want to be in the just city. What I'm basically trying to say is none of the criticisms of the just city, including that they murder babies, is seen as an existential threat to the just city, except <laughs> with the one exception of Kebes not wanting to be there. That's yeah. the one thing that we see depicted as an actual threat. Mm -hmm. That strikes me as a very astute observation as to how societies work. When you have people who are willing to remain within the bounds of a society, when you have people who are, who are willing to play along with the rules and maybe make change from the inside, then one way or another, society lurches along. Mm -hmm. And when you have people who are setting themselves against the entire society, and you naturally do, that is often much more damaging, particularly if they have nowhere to go. Another issue that comes up in The Just City is that the society is specifically and explicitly organized around Plato's Republic. The Republic very much becomes the holy text, and, and at least for some of the masters, you have to do what it says in the book. And you can sort of interpret that, and you can sort of think ways around it, maybe... And certainly people are very, very good and have shown many ways across history and across many different religions. They can be very good at mm -hmm. interpreting lots of things out of holy texts. But there is this kind of central problem with saying, we're going to lay down a rule unchanging, no matter what that rule may be. And I think you're right that a lot of the flaws, a lot of the flaws in the city, I don't know about all of them, but but a lot of them do come from that central just if there is this text, there are going to be some holes in it. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's a very astute observation, the, the, the compar comparing, comparing the Republic to a holy text. I, I, I'm religious, I'm, I'm Jewish Orthodox, so I have a certain familiarity with taking a holy text and interpreting the hell out of it, and, <laughs> then, living, uh, and then living by those rules. And I definitely see elements of that in The Just City. And of course, we have, you know, seven or eight years worth of just city rather than generations and centuries and exactly. millennia of of people who have to live within these rules and are therefore figuring out the ways the ways to kind of make the text and the way people live together fit right and you you, you see it you see it in some you see it in some uh in some ways for example with with the festivals of hair that that it looks like nobody's comfortable with you don't you don't get the sense that the masters are very fond of them or very happy about them. It's not like they would have implemented this on their own, but they're going with the system. Right. And what I think kind of offers a potential way out here is the idea that that the texts are open to, first of all, interpretation, because they mentioned that there are so many details left undetailed, which is obvious. So so the masters have a lot of authority just, just by filling in the, the, the details. But there's also the sense that things can change. I think the high point of the book and the high point that, that Walton presents of the society is when the just city gives the workers, recognizes the workers as, uh, as individuals. Before we get to the problems of privilege in the just city, a review of the upcoming novella Buffalo Soldier from Brandon O'Brien. Good day, friends and neighbors. And thank you for traveling once again with Black Star Cruises. 
your number one choice for watching blackness shine among the stars. This star date's destination is Maurice Brothers' brilliant novella, Buffalo Soldier, which, right out of the gate, I have a lot of things to say about. So, last time you traveled with us, when we ventured into the world of Kaya Shanti Wilson's A Taste of Honey, I spoke a great deal about voice, because I love blackness speaking in its own voice just as much as Wilson did, and just as much as his novella did. That desire to hear strong black voice is what drew me to Buffalo Soldier immediately. I mean, I'm an Afro-Caribbean man. If the title of a book is Buffalo Soldier, trust that I go in and want to at least see what it's about. And I wasn't disappointed. In fact, let me qualify that. I actually opened the work with a great pain in my heart that I understood. Because the very first portion of the novella opens with the protagonist, Desmond Coke, speaking to his young escort Leish Tafari in proper English. And for a moment I went, why? Let me hear you now. I'm not Jamaican, but living in the Caribbean means I still know and love its sound better than whatever the world pretends is proper English anyway. And then I realized what was happening. It's a significant theme in the work to me. Characters clashing with their own voice in the political space of Albion, code switching as a kind of negotiation between them and the world. And it hurt to see Desmond think to himself that, in his own thoughts, he felt as if he was slowly erasing himself. Because even though I've barely had experiences like that in my own life, I know that a lot of people have had that kind of concern on a regular basis. Having to put away their voice for some political reason, to protect themselves or others, but again some semblance of power in circumstances where they lack it. Desmond butts up against the pain of it often, as does one of his later allies in the work, a Native American woman named Kajika, and the way they address it is poetic and frustrating and real, which I appreciated. Now, let's get the active and violent guts of the work out of the way immediately. Buffalo Soldier is the story of Desmond Coke, a former Jamaican spy for the Rastafarian Nyabingi, escorting a young man named Leish Tafari, a child with a mysterious heritage and a wealth of power and influence he doesn't even fully fathom, out of their homeland to find safe haven, traveling through a vision of an America that might have been, born in the shadow of little shifts in history that turned their world vastly different than we remember it. And that is a damn good place to start a fantasy thriller story, with two renegades trying to find freedom in a hostile world. The spy novel quality of action is definitely there, and I enjoyed it. But it is evident in the work that this is just the story that it needs to tell to get to its deeper value. And that deeper value is the stories that we tell. Leish, as a timid but precocious boy, loves stories, and won't stop asking to hear people tell them. But it's through his insistence that we discover the stories that are of greatest meaning to those who bother to tell them. These stories are these characters' literal worldviews, as in, the lenses through which they observe the world and their place in it. It goes back to the ways in which these characters negotiate their own bodies and truths in the world, and they all acknowledge storytelling as a legacy of memory a cultural inheritance, passed down, parent to child, 
connecting us to our past, as Desmond puts it. Or, more succinctly, in Kajika's words, our story demands respect. In this way, just as Desmond views the world through the themes of the stories he's learned, the work itself is its own fable, transcending the way we usually see the tropes of the fantasy thriller and becoming much, much richer, while still being, you know, full of steam-powered automata-wielding energy pistols. It's also a story that is pretty damn observant of the elements of history that it twists and converts for its purposes, while still layering intriguing fantasy elements upon that history. I genuinely recommend Buffalo Soldier. It's quite a short novella to travel to, but within it is this really comforting reminder that the stories that we are told, and the stories that we tell, play an incredible role in the kinds of people we become, and the world we shape through them. That has been this month's journey aboard Black Star Cruises. I do hope you travel with us again next time. And now to a longer discussion of privilege in the dress city, and also how our initial assumptions about the book affected the ways that we read the charms and fractures of the city. We don't even have a viewpoint that's not incredibly privileged. Yes, exactly. We have a a master and two goals. (laughs) Like, Simea gets, I mean, first of all, she she gets lots of freedom because Socrates wants to have dialogues with her. Right. Mm-hmm. But also she gets lots of freedom because she's a gold. Yep. And the Just City implements Plato's noble lie that people have three kinds of, or one of three kinds of metal within them. And you're either a gold and you're going to become a philosopher king or... Groundwork? I don't know. I don't even know what, what exactly they're, they're meant to be because they are so little discussed. Except pointing out that the gold has, for instance, a lot more free time and a lot more flexibility in deciding how they're mm-hmm. going to pursue their own excellence. It's very clear on the golds being privileged and but it doesn't give you it doesn't give you any insight into the life of anybody who isn't privileged, which is honestly exactly how privilege works. Yes, it is portraying privilege and yes it is accurately portraying privilege in that those who are privileged don't sort of have to notice their privilege. But I would have liked the book to notice that the people who are really privileged are really privileged. I feel like it does. We we have no sense of what it's like for anyone who's not, right? Right. We have a we have a, a, a vague awareness that they exist. We know that Kebis exists. We know that he's fomenting discord. But he even gets he even gets he even gets gold. gold. He even gets because, gold because yes. Socrates wants to have dialogues with him, so we're gonna make him gold. Which is why we get to see him and how we know that the masters are manipulating certain things and they are you know making for the mathematical proportions that plato thought should exist in goldness versus not goldness so there are more and more cracks showing up in this perfect utopia i would say that every time that they that there is a privilege there is a recognition of that privilege in in other words they say well you know the people who aren't gold they you know they don't get this they have things poor off. They know that they're that they're inferior. Like they, 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 as soon as they even mention the 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 uh, the metal system, they're immediately saying, "But you know, you keep saying that you know all the metals are basically equal, but you also keep mentioning them in the same order." <laughs> right. 
and and the golds are really seem to be the only ones that you that you care about. So they are aware of the privilege in the sense that every time that there is a privilege, they say, uh, you know, this sounds like a privilege. And yet, even to, you know, even despite that, you never actually see all the unprivileged. At the very end, you have the debate between uh, Athene and Socrates, where Socrates says, yes, you have people who love the city. Uh, yes, you have people who hate the city. And he points to the examples that we know. He points to Simeon and Kebis. Mm-hmm. But you have no idea how many people each of those represents. <laughs> you don't know, you don't know like what the divisions are. You don't know if, you know, if all the silvers are actually super happy or if they're all with Kebis. You don't even get to see the fallout when, when Kebis does his revolt. You don't have a sense of how many people are with him. It's hidden from us at this point. Right. And, and that really bothered me. Yeah. Creating a society and telling some people that they are better than others by virtue of whatever. And that mm-hmm. you can sort of see inside them and, and therefore, you know, I mean, I, I get that to some extent we all have different kind of learning <laughs> styles and tendencies and inborn right. traits and whatever. But, mm-hmm. but the notion that like we can look at these people and decide that they are fit only for this thing or that thing, that is in fact a really destructive lie that has been pursued in lots and lots of ways in lots and lots of societies and telling a story about the just city which is founded on this lie without any without kind of addressing the fact that that has and i do you think it doesn't acknowledge that that's a wrong thing to do that that's a destructive system I don't think it shows the kind of ways or reasons that it's a destructive system. I mean, it's not good for the golds, but it's really not good for the not golds. So I th- I think that what's going on here is that it knows that something destructive is going on. It's very clear on that. It says this is you know this is wrong. This is not just. This is a fundamental criticism that Socrates has, and the, and and everybody is very uneasy with. But it also doesn't show it to you. It doesn't show you the consequences, which seems to me to be to be your issue with it, that you want to see the consequences. Yes. Whereas I, I feel like I'm, I'm okay for the purposes of the story and for the limited scope of the story, knowing that something really bad is going on, and that's why I feel like there's this ominous tension brewing that's going to blow up. I don't need to be convinced that something I know is destructive actually is. Okay, in order to understand a society, you need to understand what its goals are. And you need to understand what it's trying to do. Yes. In order to understand why people think this is a good idea, you need Simea as the proof of concept of somebody for whom the system is really, really good. Okay? Yeah, go on. This is interesting. So you, you need that as a proof of concept. That That's a lot of what the book is doing. And I think part of the point is that society usually has very good intentions and it is good for some of the people some of the time. Mm-hmm. And this book is about showing that. It's about showing that even though there's clearly a lot of stuff wrong, you can see 
why people are pursuing this. You can see why people think it's a good idea, and they are not even wrong about it being a very, very good society for some people. Mm -hmm. It is a very good society for some people. And what they are missing, and what the book explicitly makes vague, and I, I think it's important that it's vague in, 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 in some ways, it says not, but this is bad because the true cost is too high. It doesn't say that. You don't know that. You cannot make that judgment call at this point. Mm -hmm. Instead, what it's saying is, you don't know the cost. There is a cost. You know that you're paying it, but you're not in a position to see or to estimate whether, whether that's a big cost or a small cost. It's interesting that because I read the city is basically a positive thing and was sort of waiting for the other shoe to drop, it was really bothering me that I was not seeing the the areas where privilege is revealed and where kind of the fractures exist. I saw those much more as kind of one-off things and not revealing systemic flaws <laughs> and problems. Uh, so I saw, I saw the whole book as, as kind of piling up fractures and asking, kind of constantly asking, are these fractures enough to invalidate the whole idea? That's kind of what I see the book as, is a question of the flaws versus the whole and asking whether, you know, whether the whole justifies the flaws. Right. And I did find very strongly that that, that seemed to me to be the explicit question at the end. Thanks for listening to Cabbages and Kings. Please let me know what you think of the show. On the website, cabbagesandkings.audio, there's a feedback form. Or just go ahead and email contact at cabbagesandkings.audio. The show is on Twitter at KingCabbageCast. Let me know what you enjoyed, what books you're reaching for now, and what I can do to make the show better. The website also has a link to the RSS feed for the show, which you can also find on iTunes or wherever fine podcasts are aggregated. Until next time, enjoy your reading.